Welcome to See Beneath Your Beautiful, where guests share stories of adversity and perseverance, which inspire, encourage, and challenge us. We embrace these tough conversations, intimately exploring our loves, fears, and hopes with a delicious combination of depth and lightness. My name is Paul Henderson, and my current occupation is I'm the Dean of Students at a small private school in Richmond, Virginia. Um, I absolutely love working with children. It's my passion. One thing I always tell the parents is that uh, we will take care of your babies because I know that you're trusting us to be a good place, to be a safe place for your children. That's my current position. Um, I'm a former sports chaplain. I did about eight years of sports chaplain work on a middle school, high school, and a collegiate level. I actually worked with the NFL team on three separate occasions. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also um, an author of my new book, Slave No More, Conquering and Master Within, which uh, we'll talk about later. Yeah. My bride is Kiara. We've been married for 10 years and we have four sons, four sons, <laughs> DJ, who's nine, Joey, who's seven, David will be five and our baby boy, Noah will be two in April. Oh, awesome. I just actually looked at your Facebook page, Fatherhood on the Fly, and the picture of you and your sons is amazing. I love that picture. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a lot of action around here. <laughs> absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. That's awesome. <laughs> Did you always want a bunch of kids? Well, I come from a large family. I have five brothers. So, Oh, um, you do? and all boys also? It's interesting because out of the six of us, I'm the one that got the boy gene. My brothers that have children have either majority girls or all girls. So it's just interesting how that works out. <laughs> I'm the youngest of six. There was three girls and three boys, though, but I'm the only one with daughters. Everybody else had oh, really? boys also. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That is interesting. How it that works is out. interesting. <laughs> I don't know how any of it works. Well, where are you in the lineup of your six? I'm the second oldest. Okay. And um, it was kind of tough because my oldest brother was so smart. He was so smart. He accomplished so many things. It's actually something that I dealt with, which led to some of my story. Uh, I always felt like there was something that I had to live up to. Mm-hmm. Even as an athlete, I mean, I ran track and field in college. But even when I was doing that, I, I always felt like I was trying to live up to a certain standard. But when all along, you know, my belief is that God made me who I am and, mm-hmm. and it's okay for me to be happy and to accept who God has made me to be. I remember in high school, he's one year older than me. I remember going into high school and he's a, he's a basketball player. Now, you know, basketball and you have track and field. Basketball is definitely the more popular sport of the two. Mm-hmm. And I remember being comfortable with people calling me Little Tim. It was a comfort place for me because I was so unsure of myself. And then part of the story goes is when he graduated high school, he went to the Naval Academy. And, you know, that's a, a full scholarship. And and I remember my dad saying this. And now, he wasn't intentionally putting pressure on me. But at, at my brother's graduation party, he said, you know, my oldest son, you know, we're not paying for his college education. He has a full scholarship. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't plan on paying for any of my sons. Mm-hmm. All I'm thinking is I graduate next year. Right, right. I don't know if this is going to happen. So I don't know that he was putting pressure on me intentionally. Yeah. But that's how I took it. Understood. Yeah. Absolutely how I took it. Yeah. 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 Do you think any of your siblings felt like they were trying hard to live up to you? I do. It took a while for me to notice, you know, I was the first of my siblings to really quit the party scene. Mm -hmm. I got involved with like a Christian ministry when I was in college and I ended up doing that for eight years with the sports chaplain work through uh, Fellowship Christian Athletes. And being raised in a Christian home with parents who are very active in our church, 
unfortunately, there were times where I felt like they put me on that same type of mm-hmm. pedestal. Hey, look at what Paul's doing. He's out there working with all of these athletes and he's making a difference and so on and so forth. In reality, I was just doing what I believe was the right thing for me to be doing. And I was passionate about it. In no way was I trying to put pressure on my brothers. But when my parents would speak or there'd be Christmas dinner, they would say, Paul, do you have anything to say? I honestly it got pretty uncomfortable because I felt like I was starting to be put on some type of pedestal amongst my brothers. And quite honestly, it caused us to sometimes not really get along as well, which was very hard, very hard to deal with, especially knowing how much I love them. Thankfully, we've made it through that. Some of us, we've had some hard conversations and we've come out on the good side. I love that you guys have had hard conversations because of the siblings I have left. I've actually lost two brothers already. So sorry to hear that. Thank you. Nobody wants to talk about the past or have a deep conversation. They're just like, yeah, the past is the past. Our childhood, you know, it is what it was and there's nothing to do about it now. But I would love to have conversations that are meaningful about how we all felt. It defined me as the youngest of six. I'll tell you the way my siblings just acted towards me, I guess, or reacted to me as the baby. It made me who I was for a long time until I realized that I had the opportunity and the choice to change my thoughts. But that took a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. Between that situation and other things that were said, and and I like to say the way I took things, I don't know were intentional, Mm -hmm. you know, on the other person's side, but that's how I took it. Yeah. My high school track and field coach, I remember one side. Now, remember, I was comfortable being called Little Tim. What does Little Tim mean? Oh, is that your brother's name? Right. Okay. So his name is Tim. Okay. And our last name is Henderson. So out there would either call me Little Tim or Little Henderson. I see. And I felt comfortable in that because at the time I was fairly, I was fairly shy, uh, fairly soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. So that was a comfortable place for me. Now, my junior year, uh, that was the, the best year for my track and field team. And I remember being at a practice one day after school and we had a good opportunity that year to potentially win. I remember my coach said, we have a great opportunity this year. He said, if I'm honest, Paul, you're the weakest link. Now, that was actually his way of, of motivating me. And he would come to me later and say, Paul, why do I have to always get on you in order to get you to run fast? But the way I took it actually lasted years later. I would be in college working on a group project and I would have this constant reminder, you know, I'm the weakest link. I don't want to be the weakest link in this project. You know, later in my uh, professional career, I want to be the weakest link on this leadership team. Why do I want to be the weakest link when it comes to working on this project? So a lot of what I dealt with was how I actually took things, even though sometimes it may not have been as intentional, because this is also the same coach that helped me to believe I can run on the collegiate level. Mm -hmm. That was his actual belief in who I was. I heard something from a pastor called be unoffendable. It's hard work to not be offended easily. Things people say, they stick. You're absolutely right. So if you look at my birth order, along with some of the things my dad's saying, so my coach is saying here, hey, you know, Paul, you're, you're the weakest link. Now that year, we actually finished very well, like much higher than expected. Mm-hmm. But having that constant thought, you know, weakest link, weakest link. And then my dad's saying a few months later, I don't plan on any of my sons going to college. And then the next year, after my first semester, we had trouble getting me back into college because we had trouble making a payment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I felt horrible. I felt like, man, this is my fault. Yeah. And that was a constant thing, you know, over the course of my life. This is my fault. This is my fault. And that's something that I had to learn how to overcome. And so how did you learn to overcome it? My senior year in college, I dealt pretty severely with um, suicidal thoughts. I would fail or I would have a relational problem and I would just be overcome with these thoughts of it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. I would feel less than. And I remember telling my parents what I was dealing with. And I remember one summer, summer of 2007, about 15 years ago, I called my mom and let her know I was having another rough bout. The thoughts were just overtaking me. And she said, Paul, where's this coming from? I told her, I said, I don't know. And then I told her for so long, I've been trying to live up to these standards, you know, that I felt like had been placed on my life. And I felt like I was failing at every single one. If I dealt with the relational problem, that feeling of a failure would come right back. It would come right back. And then after a while, I would feel, you know what? Is it really worth it? Mm-hmm. I keep failing. Is it really worth it? And through that conversation with my mom, I'll never forget it. She talked with me. She prayed with me. And she began to tell me, oh, Paul, this is who you are. All your life has purpose. All your life has a plan, which my dad believes too. At the time, I wasn't hearing that as much from him. Thankfully, I have a great relationship with both my parents, you know, to this day. That was a very, very helpful conversation to be able to have that experience with my mother of of all people, you know, um, at 21, almost 22 years old. It's amazing how words can help change your perspective or help change the lens in which you see the same life circumstance. That's really exciting that your mom was the one to give you the words that you needed to hear. I love that. I'm a parent of two daughters. They're 26 and 22. And well, my mother passed away when I was 18. And I was upset with her most of my life for not being present. We had six kids and there was only nine years between the oldest and the youngest. It sounds like you guys were kind of close together too. Well, my youngest brother was born. My oldest brother was 14. The oldest four of us, we're bunched in there. I mean, right now we're 35. There's a set of twins that are 35. I'm 36 and my oldest brother is 37. Same with us. There was only nine years apart between all six kids. And there was three husbands and my mom and dad were divorced when I was one and a half. So oh wow, it was a crazy, crazy house. And I was upset with her most of my life until I became a parent and I had to get my mother off the pedestal and acknowledge that she was struggling and that she did the best she could because I am constantly struggling. You know, I was single with two kids and struggling and doing the best I could and not always saying the right thing. So I was just wondering if now that you're a parent of four boys, do you think differently about your dad at all about maybe the things he said or thinking maybe differently about where his heart was and what he was just trying to do? I don't know. I just think completely differently about my mother now than I used to. Right. I think what I had to learn how to do with my dad Part of the reason that our relationship is better is because I, quite honestly, I had to learn to adjust my expectations. Okay. Because to this day, he'll still say little things. And I realized that he doesn't necessarily mean any harm. It's just probably the way he views things. And also my grandfather, grandfather was very private and military man, you know, 28 years in the U.S. Army, Mm -hmm. uh, but he was very private. And I remember one day just wanting to know more about my family. And I spent some time with my grandfather and I was asking questions about his dad because I'm like, you know, my name is Henderson. My dad's name is Henderson. My grandfather's name is Henderson. What about your dad? He wouldn't tell me anything. Oh, really? He didn't talk about his time in the army. He didn't really talk much about his dad. So mm. really what 
I saw, I had to learn and come to grips with that. My dad did the best that he could. Yeah. So for him to have us in church and active and church activities was more than what his dad did. So in a certain ways, he felt like, hey, I'm giving my, my children something that my dad did not give me. So that part I respect. And so I guess in some ways, that part of my perspective did shift. And in other areas, I just had to learn how to adjust my expectations. Now, I know when I go visit, there's no telling what he, he <laughs> that's no telling what he may say to my wife and I and realize he may not really mean any harm. It may just be his perspective. Yeah. Are you at all careful about how you parent? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm very careful what I say to my sons. The things that I longed for from my father, I strive to give those things to my son, as I'm sure my dad did. Yeah. One thing that I, I do is I try to spend individual time with my sons and speak to them individually. Whereas a lot of times growing up, I felt like I was just a part of a group. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess there were a lot of us. Right. No, <laughs> I know. know. So, I just, you get it. hundred percent. We were like a clown car coming out of a station wagon. Did you guys have a station wagon? I'm a little older than you. My grandparents did, and we borrowed it a few times. We did have the minivan, which my wife and I currently have as well. Uh-huh. And we also had a um, burden. How old are you? I'm 36. I'm 54. I was the station wagon generation. But yeah, there are certain things I do. I'm always speaking life into my children. If I drop the ball, I'm always sure to to own it. You know, mm-hmm. if my son tells me he's hurt or that I said something that, that potentially offended him or that he didn't like, I'm sure to listen yeah. and, and realize that, hey, there are certainly areas for growth in me. And I realize that I have blind spots. One thing I realize is that it's one thing for me to tell my children to own up to their mistakes. It's another thing for them to see me doing it mm-hmm. so that they say, hey, that's not just telling me to own up to my mistakes. He's showing me by him owning up to his mistakes, even if it's with me. That's something that um, I strive to do. I didn't always see that growing up. That's something that I really strive to do with, with my children. So your mom talked to you that day. And then did you ever have suicidal thoughts after? Or did you just go, I have a purpose and there's the reason I'm here? Both. What happened is here and there, I would have a quick thought and I would automatically go to what you just said. Mm -hmm. I have a purpose Mm -hmm. and and I know why I'm here. So I had to learn how to combat those thoughts with good words, with good seeds. So it's actually both and. Okay. And so that leads me to asking about how your book came about. A year after that whole episode was suicide, I graduated college and I spent eight years with Fellowship of Christian Athletes and doing all the sports ministry and, you know, thinking that you're changing the world and, and making a difference. People ask you, can you come speak here and speak there and so on and so forth. It was cool. But around year number eight, I didn't realize how much it had become my identity. Oh, okay. You know, people say, hey, can you come speak here? And my favorite NFL team, I remember telling them a college group one time, I said, you know, if I had a dream job, it would be to, to speak in front of the Philadelphia Eagles. That's my favorite football team. Well, they asked me to come speak. Mm-hmm. I was blown away. I was shocked. I was like, this is crazy, mm-hmm. you know. But what was happening, it was becoming to become part of my identity. I was starting to identify myself as a speaker, but, you know, not even popular, but locally amongst different Christian groups. Hey, Paul, can you come speak here? Or can you come speak at this college? Or, hey, we have a group down here in Newport News, Virginia, which is about 90 miles from where I live. Can you come speak here? And that's what I was doing. And, and I was really comfortable in that. I remember 
one day I was driving to meet with my former supervisor and I was having some fundraising trouble. And I remember saying, God, like, who am I? Who am I? And the only thing I heard is my belief. The only thing I heard was you're my son. You're here with husband's my wife and you're a father to your boys. And that's it. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear anything about a speaker. I didn't hear anything about you're going out there to work with all these athletes. All I heard was you're a family man. Be a better husband. Be a better father. And that rocked me Mm -hmm. because I felt like I was failing with this sports ministry because I had to fundraise and the the funding wasn't there. Mm -hmm. I decided at that point to step away from FCA and and go into teaching. This is what I can do. I'm teaching at a day school, at alternative school, and we're going to change the world. We're going to make a difference. And then what happened was that school actually had four campuses and one guy shut down. And guess which campus was shut down? The campus where I was. Mm -hmm. I have a wife. We have two children. She's pregnant with our third. I don't have a job. How am I going to support my family? And I remember really struggling and I felt like I was going down a tunnel and I couldn't see the end. I couldn't see the light of day. About a month after my third son was born, I went to this event. There was a guy who had mentored me a bit. He said, Paul, there's more in you. You got things in you that need to come out. Good things that people need to hear. Your life has purpose. I know you don't have a job right now, but there are things for you to do. And that was the same night that I started with Bobby was frustrated, which are the first words in my book, Slave No More, Conquering the Master Within. That night, I started writing that book in 2017, which ironically is 10 years after I had the suicide episode. It was a joy to write. It was a joy to interview people who had suffered diverse trials and they overcame. So as I'm interviewing them to help me with my book and to implement their stories into my book, with you know, fictional character names, as I'm hearing their stories to write a book, I'm learning from them. And they're also teaching me how to overcome the struggle that I'm in. There's a woman I interviewed who she dealt with some racial trauma in Virginia to schools when they were told to integrate. There was one county who refused. And rather than integrating in the 1950s, they shut the school system down for five years. And she lived through that. And she had to learn how to overcome. She's 70 years old. And she now is one of the primary caretakers for my children. So hearing her story and hear how she overcame that inspired me. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another woman in the book. She was abused as a young child by her stepfather at a very young age, which led to a very promiscuous life. Mm -hmm. But what happened was one day she got a vision for her life and she went from being a prostitute in New York to being a college professor. Those are stories that were told to me as I was writing my book. And as I'm hearing how they capture a vision for their lives to help them to overcome, I'm writing this book, but I'm being inspired at the very same time. I interviewed just recently a man who is 38 years old and has never taken a step in his life. He was born with muscular dystrophy and is a quadriplegic. He has no use of his hands or his feet. And another person who just lost her son to a fentanyl, well, a drug overdose. He took a pill, which happened to be laced with fentanyl, 33 years old, the son was. I guess we've all gotten through the hard stuff because here we are. Absolutely. It was amazing during that time of being out of work for, you know, about a half year, about five, six months and hearing all of these stories. I'm learning I'm out of work right now. I don't have a job. I have a wife and three small children. This is challenging. 
But as I'm listening to the story, I'm realizing that, you know what, I can overcome this. Yeah. Because if they can overcome what they went through, then I can overcome this situation that I'm currently in. During that COVID season, when it first hit, during the whole deal with George Floyd up in Minnesota, I noticed there was a lot of drama. A lot of people were home because they couldn't go anywhere. So they had to see the situation that happened. People who may not have paid attention before to that situation all of a sudden became aware. At the same time, I also noticed there was so much information out there. And in the midst of the information, I wanted to be sure that, yes, as a Black man, yes, as an African-American man, I understand that there are so many challenges out there, but I also want to get a message out there that in the midst of the challenges, we can always overcome. Mm -hmm. We can always overcome. And that's part of the whole subtitle, Conquering the Master Within. I never look down on anybody's life circumstances. I never downplay anything that someone went through in life. But my strong belief is our choice to how we respond to those circumstances. And when you overcome that obstacle, you get a little stronger. And that strength allows you to help someone else along their path. How did you come up with the title of your book? I was going to speak to a middle school, middle school or high school about 10 years ago. And I remember that morning as I was preparing, it just hit me. I was like, slave no more. Now, at the time, I thought it was going to be principles and just telling different stories and, you know, chronicling different things which is part of the reason that I added Conquering the Master Within, because I didn't want it to be confused with chattel slavery, you know, like people. Yeah. Even though that concept is, is somewhat of how I got the title. I was a history major. I did study a lot of, of slavery and so on and so forth. And seeing different slaves after the Emancipation Proclamation go back and work for the same slave master, I see people doing that in life. Yeah. Going back to the same master that once held them down. That was the whole idea behind it. Yeah, I love that. You also have a blog, Fatherhood on the Fly. What's that about? One thing I always say is we're learning, we're growing, and we're getting better one day at a time. Yeah. Started out just telling funny stories about my kids, you know, having a soccer game and the kids chasing butterflies rather than kicking a soccer ball. (laughs) But after a while, what I began to realize is that every once in a while, I would post something inspirational. And people would respond. Mm -hmm. I would see fathers out there who didn't have their father in their life. And they would be responding. And they say, you know, Paul, my dad wasn't there, but I want to be a good father. I don't claim to be an expert at all. But I do believe that I can get better one day at a time. I do believe that I can be present. I do believe that I can spend quality time with my children. So part of the one day at a time is, hey, I don't know everything. Some of these things I do feel like, hey. It's on the fly, but I'm going to be intentional about learning. If I make a mistake, I'm going to be intentional about learning from that mistake so that I can strive not to make it again. If we can all get better, then it's going to be better for the next generation. Isn't it fascinating anyway to hear other people's stories? That's kind of how I came up with the Slave No More, Conquer the Master Within. So I would hear stories. Yeah. I would see person A over here with a story and a person B with the same set of circumstances. But person A chose to overcome while person B was still dealing with those circumstances. Right. When I would hear person A's story of overcoming, it would inspire me. Mm -hmm. But it also had me asking questions. What is it that made you tick? What kept you going? 
what are the factors or what was that one thing that said, you know what, I might not be able to conquer it all today, but I can take another step. And that's something that I always love when I hear other people's stories, trying to find lessons. Did you discover a common denominator between the people who stayed in their victimhood and the people who overcame? Yes. What is that? The people who stayed in their victimhood, I noticed that there was always a constant focus on what happened. Yeah. In the past. Right. The people who overcame the challenges, there was always a strong vision in front of them. Mm. What's behind you can hold you bound if you allow it to. But if you have something powerful ahead of you that you're striving towards, it can really help. Every person I interview, it's amazing that they all had a strong vision for their lives. In my book, Rosa Rogers, she said, I saw a lady with a white suit on and I said, what did she do? And she found out she was a nurse. All of a sudden, she had a vision to be a nurse. She ended up being a nurse for 40 years. After being out of school for five years, Miss Ruby, in my book, she went from being a prostitute up in New York to saying, you know what? I think I could be a math teacher. And she came home, got her GED. She ended up going to Virginia Tech. That's actually where she went to school. Mm-hmm. She graduated with her math degree. Now she's a professor here in Virginia. And she's also sang the national anthem at professional sporting events. She's led missions trips to South Africa. The same girl mm-hmm. who was a prostitute in New York. She had a vision for something bigger. As I interviewed each of these individuals, each of them said, all I had a vision to do something bigger. And that's what helped me to overcome. What is your vision for your future? I'm currently living part of my vision now. I'm working in a school. What's interesting, having so eight years, having the opportunity to go to schools and speak to groups in the mornings and, or sometimes after school. I, I wrote this book when I was out of the formal organization. I did my best to write it in a way where it was simple enough where a sixth or seventh grader could understand it. Um, I wrote it as inspirational fiction so that possibly I could get it into schools. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that right now the seventh grade class in my school is reading this. Oh, awesome. And it wasn't my idea. Oh, awesome. So great. Part of my vision, I'm seeing it right now. This message is being shared in a school about how you don't have to look at what hurts you. You can look at what's ahead of you. Your life has purpose. You be an encourager. And if you've overcome something big, who can you reach back and help? If I can help people and generations do that, I think I'm living out my vision. That's a big part of what I believe we're called to do. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of See Beneath Your Beautiful, hosted by Hara Allison. And thanks for your ratings and reviews. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Stay tuned.